Let's pray. Father, we know that the day is coming and will soon be here when all creatures that you have made will bow before our King, the Lord Jesus. And we long for that day, Lord. It excites our hearts to think of seeing you and knowing you as we are known. And Lord, we pray this morning as we come to this great text that you would help us to, to behold something of your greatness. And we know that it is the unfolding of your word that gives light. And so we pray, Lord, help us as we look into your word, Lord, to see you, to know you as you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. As you turn there, I want to share with you a fundamental axiom of life. It's this. Your joy, your hope as a Christian, your confidence, and your courage in this life are all tied up to a high view of God. Once you lose sight of the greatness of God, you will begin to experience devastating consequences. You'll doubt God's love. You'll doubt His promise. And you'll doubt His provision. Lose sight of God's greatness and you begin to lose everything. And so let me ask you this morning, what is your view of God? Did you come here this morning in awe of the greatness of God? Or are you on the decline? Have you been in a season of trial or uh, just prolonged difficulty? And your view of God has begun to wane. Has your view of God diminished over the past week with bad news or other difficulties? Has your view of God diminished over the past year? Well, wherever you are, we all stand in need of a fresh vision of the greatness of God. And our text, Isaiah 40, comes to us this morning as a call to behold that great God. You'll remember from last week that the central theme of Isaiah 40 is God's majesty or God's greatness. And that this chapter was written to a people in exile, similar to us as Christians living in exile. We are aliens and strangers on this globe. They were suffering, and many of them, most of them, had been uprooted from their homes and separated from their families. And their life was immensely difficult. And somewhere along the way, during this season of difficulty, they had begun to lose sight of the greatness of God. And so Isaiah has one major objective in Isaiah 40, and that is to help these people Get their arms around the greatness of God. So would you stand with me as we read our passage. Isaiah 40, and we'll read starting in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? 
As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering, he selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces the rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw in these verses that the prophet was calling the class together, as it were. The people of Judah had lost sight of the glory and greatness of God, and he brings them together for a sort of uh, a class session so that he can rebuke them and then remind them of the great God that they have lost sight of. And what he does uh, is through a series of questions, he makes five comparisons that begin really in verse 12. And these comparisons are meant, are meant to wake them up to the greatness of God, and they come to us in much the same way. Isaiah's aim is to help us this morning, to help you, to help you restore your vision of God. The first comparison that we saw last week was in verse 12. It's the comparison of God and nature. And we saw that when compared to nature, or when God is set alongside nature rather, nature is infinitesimally small and shrinks before Him. Second, we saw in verses 13 to 14 that when God is compared to the wisdom of individuals, that their wisdom is seen to be utter folly. God is unmatched in His wisdom. And then third, we saw a comparison between the strength of our God and the collective strength of the nations. That's in verses 15 to 17. And what we saw there was that the strength of the nations is so utterly insignificant and and inconsequential to God's work that the best analogy is that they are like a drop in a bucket. It's amazing. So having demonstrated that for the class, as it were, Isaiah now turns to compare God with two more things. The senseless idols of the nations, in verses 18 to 20. And then he compares God to the great kings and rulers of the earth. That's verses 21 to 24. So what I want to do this morning is just walk through both of those comparisons. And and with God's help to grow in our understanding and comprehension of God's greatness. So look with me at verse 18. 
To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? In other words, in light of God's unmatched greatness, what will you compare Him to? Nature shrinks before Him. Creation comes to Him for counsel. And the nations at large bow to Him. So what image can you concoct that will convey something of His incomparable greatness? And do so in a way that's accurate. And it's really as if Isaiah is preempting a foolish answer from the class. He knows that the people of Judah have been perpetually tempted by the idols of the nations. And perhaps he sees that their knee-jerk reaction might be something like this. Well, we have plenty of images and idols that we could compare God to. But before they can even say it, Isaiah undercuts their folly. And he begins to show the delusion of idolatry. Look at verse 19. And I love the way that the ESV captures this. It says this, an idol, exclamation mark. That's the comparison you want to make, an idol? (laughs) It's shocking. You think that an idol can capture the greatness of God. You have lost your mind. (laughs) And so Isaiah really sets out to show them how delusional that proposal would be. And in the ancient world, idols were in every home. They were believed to be the physical representation of gods on earth. In fact, the life of God was thought to reside in the statue. The false god was considered to be actually present in the little image. So much so that the owners of idols uh, would provide for these idols two meals a day, typically including dessert. In temples, musicians would play for the idol as they consumed their food. The clothing of the idol had to be kept up in order to maintain the favor of God. You don't properly clothe me, says the deity, then I'm not going to keep you safe. If you failed to properly care for this image, you would lose the protection and favor of of the God. Now this sort of idolatry seems crazy to us, but it was the common majority view of the day. And in fact, Israel and Judah were odd because they were not allowed to incorporate these little images into their worship. We see that uh, quickly after their redemption, Exodus 32. Uh, the people of Israel decide to concoct an image and worship it. They were, they were prone to this. And not only internally were they prone to this idolatry, but everyone around them was doing it. And in fact, Israel succumbed to this sin so much, the climactic um, falling, as it were, led to their Babylonian exile. But because this idolatry, this type of idolatry, was so blatantly foolish, Isaiah didn't even try to convince Judah that God was superior to these images. You will see that in our text. He he doesn't even try to say God is better than this. He merely walks through the basics of idol construction. 
And as he does it, he demonstrates that this is an utter delusion. Look at verse 19. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. In other words, a person, a human, just like you, is the one who constructs this little god. And he's called a craftsman. It's interesting that this word is contrasted with the craftsmanship that we saw in verse 12. God is the one who crafted the heavens. He measured it and weighed it and determined its boundaries. And here, these craftsmen are making a, an idol. The God that's constructed by the craftsman is absolutely dependent on the craftsman. He casts it. He overlays it with gold. He puts jewelry on it so it looks pretty and attractive. And without its human maker, this little God is impotent. And that much is clear. And then he goes on. Look at verse 20. He who is too impoverished for such an offering, that is to say, one who can't afford to have a gold uh, idol or one adorned with silver, this person selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman. So a little more skilled than the previous craftsman. A skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. The rich among them are able to have golden deities. But the poor person, they have to go out into the woods and cut down their tree to build their god. The prophets have a lot of fun with this imagery. But they need to be careful. And Isaiah is just giving them a tip here. As they go out into the woods, they need to make sure that they don't just select any tree. They need to select a hardwood a tree that won't rot, right? I mean, how embarrassing for your God, the one who protects you and your family, to sit on the mantle and, and to rot. Right? It's humiliating, especially in front of your enemies. And then in verse 20, he seeks out a skillful craftsman. Right? He needs to be a little more skilled because it's this, this, this part is especially important. The skill is necessary because he doesn't want the idol to totter. When you're making a god, you have to make sure that it can stand up on its own. All right, this is idol making 101. <laughs> You've got to make sure of that. I mean, it, it, how shameful would it be for you have to, to have to wake up in the morning and there your idol is again, falling down on its back, helpless. And you have to pick it up and stand it back up. And Isaiah, again, is not, he's not saying anything that's not true. And as he unfolds this, uh, the process of constructing an idol, he is making a mockery of the refuges that the people of Judah have taken shelter in. And you can almost see their shame as he is going through this process. You could see their faces falling to the ground. All of a sudden, they began to see the folly of where they have come. They've lost sight of God. And now, they have opened themselves up to the most dangerous delusions. How could they have gotten here? What happened 
How could we have gone from worshiping the one true God to bowing down to an image and placing our hope in this dead, senseless idol? Well, the answer has remarkable relevance to you and I. Once you lose sight of God's greatness, you are vulnerable to the most destructive delusions. Do not think for a moment that you are not vulnerable to such a delusion. Their idolatry is open and obvious to us in the 21st century. But friends, I will tell you that our idolatry is just as delusional. And once you see God clearly, that becomes evident. We may not be bowing down to idols of wood, But every time we look for fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose and shelter and comfort and safety in something other than God, we have lost sight of God's greatness and we've bought into the delusion of idolatry. Did you know that you were created to worship? That's why you exist. And you're always worshiping something. If you are not worshiping God, you are worshiping something else. There is no escape. Do you want to know what you really worship? Well, let me give you a, a diagnostic here. Five questions to help you see what you truly worship. First, what do you seek? What is, the, what is the, the typical, if we were to look at the, the sort of film strip of your life and see your life played out, what is it that you're seeking? Is it man's approval, attention, health, safety, control, respect? What is it you seek? Well, that will point us to your God. What do you sacrifice for? Third, where do you spend most of your money? There's a, there's a clear paper trail from where you spend your money to your God. You spend your money on entertainment, vacations, your appearance. Fourth, what do you talk about most of all? What is most frequently on your lips? Sports? Freedom? Politics? Fifth, Where is your trust? What do you trust in? Where do you go when life is hard? What is your refuge? I just just squeezed five questions into that fifth question. (laughs) But where do you go when life is hard? What's your escape? That's your refuge. And what you take refuge in is your God. Friends, you were created to seek, to serve, to trust, and find your refuge in God. You were created to find your satisfaction, your security, and your hope in God. And and if you are not striving to comprehend more and more of the greatness of God, you open yourself up to every delusion that our culture has to offer. And Calvin said it best, our heart 
is a perpetual factory of idols. Your heart is constantly making new idols. And our culture is constantly presenting new idols to us, just like Judah and Israel. It's strange that Judah and Israel wouldn't incorporate idolatry into their worship of Yahweh. Culturally, it's odd, it's strange. And it's strange for us, for our culture, that we don't participate in the things that they participate in. Well, when you see God clearly, you can see through the delusion of idolatry. And you'll cease worshiping idols. And you'll return to worshiping the one true God. There is a remedy, a sure remedy, to um, perpetual idol worship. There's a cure. There is also a true image of God. There's an image that we've been given that captures the greatness of God perfectly. And that image also happens to be the remedy and cure to idolatry. You know what the image is, or who the image is, rather? It's Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance. He is the exact imprint of the divine nature. According to John 1.18, he is the one who makes known to us the Father. The only image that can perfectly capture the greatness of God has been given to us in Christ. And He is the remedy to all idolatry. (laughs) Come to Him. He is the fountain of living waters. He provides all that we need. Believe that He is what and who He said He is. Believe that what he accomplished was sufficient and perfect for sinners like you and me. Look to him in faith and lay hold of him and find complete satisfaction. That's the clarity that breaks the chain of idolatry. Look to Christ. But until you come to him, until you come humbly and earnestly to him, you will be caught up in every delusion that the world offers. But the delusions are only attractive whenever we lack a clear vision of God's greatness. That's for this reason, among countless others, that every Christian must strive to comprehend more and more of the greatness of God. Then notice fifth, the fifth and final comparison that Isaiah makes in this passage. It's the comparison of the true God over and against the kings and rulers of the world. It begins in verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? There's a building of every question and it gets more and more sober every Every progression. 
And what he's saying is essentially this, Judah. You know, remember they're in a class here. And they're looking at him. And what he's saying is, Judah, what I am about to tell you is not new information. You know these things. You know what I'm about to tell you. But in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of life, the busyness of life, the difficulty of life, the struggle of life, you have lost sight of perhaps the most basic theological reality. Namely, the absolute sovereignty of God. Little by little, Judah had lost their grip on God's sovereignty. And so in verses 22 to 24, Isaiah sets the sovereignty of God before them in new light or afresh. And these verses are something like a hymn of praise to God over and against the rulers of the earth. So here's the the general question. How, How do the most powerful people that you know and I know, how do they compare to the living God? I think you know the answer. (laughs) But let's look at it together. Look at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. That's another way of saying he is enthroned above the earth. This is the same language that we read in Psalm 2 for our scripture reading. Verse 4 says that God sits in the heavens and laughs at the nations who are in an uproar. And chaotic all around him. They're like little ants that just run around chaotically. And he laughs at them as he sits above the circle of the earth. And what do we do? We often panic and are afraid that things are unfolding before our eyes. Right? Like a bad sweater. We're seeing it unfold and unravel. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't panic. He's not worried. Why? Because he exercises absolute sovereignty over the world that we inhabit. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Notice the first comparison in light of God's reign is verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. What a flattering comparison. From God's vantage point, the inhabitants of the earth are utterly insignificant. That does not mean that God does not love His creation. We know that He does. But in comparison to God's rule and God's sovereignty over you and me in this world, we have as much influence As a grasshopper. Calvin has an excellent quote on this. He says, uh, This metaphor shows how ridiculous is the blindness of men when they claim anything for themselves, any power, any sovereignty. For they gain by their boasting just as much as if a small creature, such as a grasshopper, tried to elevate itself by leaping. But they must always fall immediately to the ground. How soon we forget that we are merely creatures. Weak and impotent before the sovereign God. 
And the most powerful among us, kings, princes, presidents, are like a grasshopper jumping around. Totally unable to affect the throne of God. Notice the next part of verse 22. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Now the idea here is not that God stretches out the heavens for him to inhabit, but he stretches them out so that we can inhabit this world. It's like you make a fort for your children. Right? You, you hang the, the blanket over the chair and you tie the other end to the table. Right? You stretch it out. This is what God does with the heavens. Right? He stretches it out for us to dwell in. And everything underneath that and above it and inside of it, well, they all live underneath the sovereign rule of God. Nothing is excluded from His Lordship, including and especially the mightiest people that walk this planet. Kings and presidents and dictators are all underneath His sovereignty. And look how He executes it. Look at verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. The word for ruler or prince here in some translation is a word that can refer to anyone who has power. We we reverence people with power. We tend to get nervous, right? When we come around people who have authority. Or is that just me? We're intimidated by presidents and kings, our boss. The people who seem to have control over our lives, they intimidate us and can frighten us. Power corrupts, right? And we know that people that exercise power over us can easily harm us. We think so. But when we fear people, kings, presidents, dictators, we are demonstrating that we've lost sight of the one who can reduce them to nothing. The wisest course of action for anyone in power is to do, as Psalm 2 says, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Kings that walk this planet in arrogance and rebel against the true king will be brought to nothing. Literally, to non-existence. And judges, those who rule beneath the kings, they will be brought to nothing. That is our sovereign God. He can take what seems to be a limitless power and reduce it to nothing. Proud, arrogant, pompous kings and presidents reduced to non-existence. You remember the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, right? Why don't you turn to Daniel with me? Daniel chapter 4. I want us to look at a few things in this section just to reinforce 
the truth of God's utter and absolute sovereignty and rule over our uh, current president, over every president in the past, and over every dictator and king that has walked this globe. Daniel chapter 4. Here is King Nebuchadnezzar in all his glory and all his pomp, the king of the most powerful nation on the planet, uh, the kingdom that destroyed the temple and carried off the people of Judah into exile. Here he is, walking on the roof of his palace, invincible, looking out over uh, what he sees as grasshoppers before him, nothing, insignificant people. And in verse 30, he says this, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? It's incredible arrogance. And Daniel tells us in verse 31, that while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared. Notice this. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. Essentially, you will become like a cow in the field until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. That is the sovereign God. He rules over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And then look at verse 33. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away. He began eating grass like cattle and his body became drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar is exactly what the sovereign Lord said would happen. The most powerful monarch of the day. His kingdom stripped from him in a moment and he is reduced to livestock in a field. His great power, the power that defeated the temple in Jerusalem and overthrew nations was nothing, nothing compared to the power of our God. And notice verse 34. This is important. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eye towards heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Notice the the similarity in language to Isaiah 40. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is accountable to none. This is what it means to bring presidents, kings, and dictators to nothing. Our God can do it, and he does it. 
in comparison to God, these kings are utterly insignificant. These presidents are utterly insignificant. But look back in Isaiah, verse 24. I'll give you a minute to flip back there. Isaiah 40, verse 24. He goes on, he says, Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. It, the kings are like seed. Have you ever had a garden? Right? Um, have you ever had your seeds rise up and overthrow you as you're trying to sow them? And <laughs> yeah, neither have I. Uh, the kings are like seed in his hand. And he, he scatters them where he wants. And as they grow, he sees them growing and he sees um, what's happening. And he, you know, he might, before their stock even takes root into the ground, he might just pluck it up. He might let it grow a little longer, depending on his good pleasure and sovereign purpose. He does whatever he wants. And, and when the king gets a little too proud, thinking, man, I'm, I'm kind of something here. Look at my kingdom. He just blows on it, and it withers, and then the wind blows it away like stubble. That's God. That's our God. And when we see Him clearly, we are fearless. When we see Him as He is, we have strength, courage, all that we need to live faithfully in this world. It was said of the Puritan pastor Thomas Hooker that he had such a high view of the majesty and the greatness of God that it was as if he could take the king and put him in his pocket. Right? He had a view of God's greatness. Well, the great American theologian B.B. Warfield, he tells a story of a, gen a general in the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. Does that sound familiar? Riots everywhere, city in turmoil. He was in a great city at a time of intense excitement and violent riots. And the streets were overrun daily by dangerous crowds. And one day, he observed a man approaching him of singularly combined calmness and firmness of mind, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. He was so impressed with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar of the crowds that when he had passed him, he turned to look, only to find that the stranger was doing the same thing. On observing his turn, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest, with his finger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? And the observer responded, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And he said, oh, I knew that you were a Westminster man. <laughs> These two men could walk with absolute sublimity in the middle of chaos. Why? Because they knew. They knew the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Life is lived for Him. He's the great sovereign. 
He's the great refuge. He's the great God to whom we go for everything. And once we see Him in light of everything else, everything else becomes almost a yawn. What you think about God shapes the way you live. Lose sight of God's greatness and you will fall apart just like the world. If you strive, though, to comprehend God's greatness, you'll know God. You'll know God and you'll be satisfied with plenty and with nothing. You won't be deluded by the idols of the world. You won't be controlled by kings and presidents and decrees. You will live in utter freedom and joy, trusting in the God who is incomparably great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so unparalleled in your greatness. That there is none beside you. There's none before you. There is none who can compare with you at all. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have made yourself perfectly known. That in Him we see the greatness of your power, the greatness of your compassion, the greatness of your wisdom to use the most heinous act ever committed on this globe, the crucifixion of the perfect Son of God. Lord, that your wisdom uses that and orchestrated that for the salvation of countless multitudes so that you would be glorified and praised. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us this morning, and we ask that you would help us more and more comprehend your greatness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.